This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Bonsoir. And what are we doing today, Puka? Well, we have a very special guest from the depths of the High Umbra, I suppose. Uh, Special guest, would you like to introduce yourself and say where you're from? Hi, Mage fans. This is Terry Robinson, guesting on Changeling the Podcast from Mage the Podcast. That works. Yes, that seems suitable. Yes, we are talking with Terry about Mage and its synergy and possible integration with Changeling for any who, I suppose, desire a crossover of some sort. So, Terry, welcome to our podcast. I just want to say, at least on my end, and you were definitely a major inspiration on me wanting to do this podcast. So I'm in the Changeling podcast in the first place. So I'm quite excited to have you here. Well, thank you so much. I am glad that the format of we are going to read a thing, describe it to you, and then tell you our feelings on the thing is such a like robust format. So to see it applied to another game, I, I'm I'm very pleased that that is working because like you kind of have the the two poles of book description and commentary, and Mage the podcast is kind of like between the two. Like you had 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade that was just book, and then you had Walking Away from Arcadia, which was almost exclusively commentary up until their their final few, um, and just kind of seeing more stuff in between the two. It, I am pleased at the number of people who positively indicate that Mage the podcast was responsible for them uh, actually playing Mage. And I have no doubt that you are kickstarting those games of Changeling, which I imagine you hope to be the ultimate result of this. Yeah, hopefully, because maybe then they'll make more books. I mean, I can dream. And I cut out again, didn't I? We've already had one listener reach out to us. Uh, did They didn't say we could say their names. I don't really want to say their name, but yes. So hopefully we'll have more of that. And it's quite exciting. Yes. So on to the interviewing. Yes. So Terry, uh, the best first question, how did you get into role-playing slash mage? I got into role-playing because there were a bunch of kids in my Boy Scout troop who were playing D&D 2nd Edition. And I'm like, what is this? An arbitrary system that I can devote mastery over? Why, yes, I will. And I kind of got into D&D 2nd Edition I loved the Planescape campaign setting. I then pursued Monty Cook across a number of other games as he repeated the winning formula of a strange city connected to other places with many factions and a certain dreamlike quality or lateral thinking logic to it. I found the marble edition of Vampire 2E at my local game store. I was in, I guess, seventh grade at the time. I grabbed that. I thought it was kind of interesting. And during a Star Wars collectible card game tournament (laughs) for the release of, I believe, Jabba's Palace. So I think that sets it to 97 or 98. I saw the big purple. I bought it. I brought it home and I read it almost in its entirety in one night. I have very fond memories of reaching the part in chapter one or chapter two, where they are just walking you through the various umbre, and it has this sinister John Cobb sun and moon art in it around midnight. 
and then um, still being there when my when my parents got up. I think I fell off around the permutation section where it got into like the real rulesy stuff, but I dabbled with it in middle school and high school, and then I came back to it as an adult. And it's been a tempestuous love tale ever since that. I've been with Mage the Podcast for uh, approaching four years now, and it's been it's been a heck of a ride. And on Mage the Podcast, you've also sort of alluded to some of your other favorite games, perhaps most notably <sighs> Invisible Sun. So, uh, Invisible Sun, take a drink. Uh, the, the t- yeah, uh, Invisible Sun, take a drink. Alternatively, if we're talking systems and setting, uh, Blades in the Dark, which at my table has to be said like it is an 80s hair metal rock opera piece. And we all go, Blades in the Dark! And there's often like a guitar riff that kind of goes with it. So, But I guess the other weird thing about my gaming experience is it is almost always with people who have never gamed or only lightly gamed otherwise. Over the course of the, the Panzerati, I've done now a little bit over 30 mage one shots so it is weird that by volume most of my game time at this point as a storyteller has been of one shots and it has radically changed my impression of what games are and how they are to be played so what is it about mage specifically that that has drawn in so much of your gaming passion one i do a podcast on it And in the same way that a parent is fascinated with their child's hobbies, even if they themselves are not interested in them a priori, it's kind of a self, like it's self-reinforcing at this point. Like I love it because I love it. It's not quite Stockholm syndrome, but it's close. But um, to me though, the things that have emerged to be the enjoyable things are in mage, you are fundamentally human. Most of the other night folk in urban fantasy are a step away from humanity vampire is taken a clear step away the werewolf has taken a clear step away changelings aren't quite the same humans are uh, or sleepers in kind of mage context the people that don't have any superpowers of any any note are kind of your standard and a mage if anything is kind of the next potential step for humanity they are a human unleashed in a potentially dangerous and destructive way at the end of the day mages are like meat sacks uh, as i'm fond of saying they are very vulnerable to the 10th sphere the sphere of gun And I think that is interesting. I like how it both draws on but does not require the commentary of human culture. And one of the things I think it shares with Changeling that I'm fascinated by, and I don't know how to have a good conversation on it, is it asks the question, so what is the value of culture? Mm. Like, why should it be a thing and why should it persist? I also like the fact that mages in general are kind of liminal characters. They kind of get to go anywhere and see anything. They need a guide in a lot of cases. I also like the fact that to me, it is not a horror game fundamentally. It can go there easily. And I I think it has a fascinating game space. Uh, As more and more time goes on, I am less interested in games that emulate genre. I just don't care. I want to be able to play with theme and mood and so on. And Mage gives a really big sandbox to do that in. I don't know if this would be a good answer or not, but when you're talking about the importance of culture in relation to Mage as a game, something that occurs to me is maybe by virtue of their being closer to humanity than a lot of the other splats in the world of darkness, their enemies tend to be other mages, right? You have traditions versus technocracy, and it's much more human versus human as opposed to vampires and werewolves and even changelings to an extent who have almost more of a predator-prey relationship with humans. And so having that in Mage allows you to almost, I guess, focus more on issues that actual 
ordinary humans have, which often do boil down to culture clash and misunderstanding across barriers of, of experience like that. So maybe it's maybe that's the the metaphor or one of the metaphors that may just kind of supernaturalizing in its setting. But I think that's reasonable. I try. I try to be reasonable. So that sort of leads me to the other question, I guess. So why mage the podcast and not invisible sun the podcast, for example? <laughs> yet. Uh, yet. It yet. could still happen. <laughs> but wh- why did you start with mage the podcast? It's probably a better thing not asking you to. The easiest way for someone to get commentary out of me is to talk about a thing in such a way that I slightly disagree with it. Um, and some of the early episodes had this view of mage that did not mesh with mine. I have a big messy view of mage where additions are not consistent and so on. So Joseph in one of the early episodes said, Hey, we're interested in this. And I raised my paw to do it on the logistics side. There was incantations, which is just a walkthrough of invisible sun. It has been noted on my list of things. I have one other question, like one other thing that I'm wondering if is on that list. It's hard to find fans of Mage who don't have problems with the game Mage. (laughs) And I'm wondering if that might actually contribute to it working well on a podcast. What are your thoughts on that too? Uh, So the idea that there is not some obvious core experience that we all agree on and that it is not just a didactic process of sharing information about it. I think that's reasonable. Part of why people would reach out is to find people who would agree and disagree with them. And also the core game is often confusing enough that guidance from other people would be useful. I guess I have relatively few issues with the game like there's a lot of things i wish were kind of different but none of them i would call issues like i run raw more or less i just use the damn rules in the book i do not use a maximalist interpretation in the sense that if there is a rule i do not feel compelled to use it i think optional rules are great but i am wondering what games would be exempt from that i guess maybe smaller intimate games that are kind of geared towards one shot like i'm i'm curious again what like a wander home podcast would be that weren't just an actual play. So mage has the benefit of drawing from culture, which is a rich. Well, it has enough meta plot. I'm always mystified when people are like mage is a giant meta plot. I'm like technically in so much as it consumes all of human history. And it's just this thin veneer on top of it, I guess. But yes, the, uh, the manifold discontents, but I think it is, I think it it does come from a genuine sense for a lot of listeners of trying to make sense from it, or at least the ones that participate in our Discord, which I did not realize in retrospect would be one of the most satisfying things I have done as a project, is just helping people make their way through Mage and answering the 10,000 setting questions that you have in a way that works for their table. Yeah, it is definitely an interesting, because when you compare it with something like Dungeons and Dragons, people have strong opinions about whether something that's produced in that setting is good or bad but nobody really disputes that it's there and it seems like yeah. with with world of darkness in general but mage in particular people you know will go 10 rounds over the verbena didn't really do this like you know those yeah. kind of very specific setting elements for my part meta plot wise i've never had vormas in my game i've never had penny dreadful in my game or any of these sort of momentous things i've never had the characters go to dosetap any of it because i I find it distracting from those core themes that you're talking about these are experiences that to some extent we can all maybe it's too grandiose to say relate to directly but we can all kind of understand how it's being translated into the game of mage so 
yeah, maybe we should take a bit of a step back. Uh, Terry, what's, because this is Changeling, the podcast. Oh, and, right. Uh, yeah. All three of us are, you know, ma- up front. All of us are Mage fans. I believe you've run Mage too, Booga. I have. I yes. have before. Yes. I've played and run with Gusto. We're, we're big. We're all big fans of Mage here, but not everyone listening to this podcast would be. So what are some terms and concepts that people unfamiliar with the game should know before we get too much more into Mage, do you think? I mean, that's a big ask, but... Mage starts with the idea that everyone's beliefs influence reality. And in it, you are a mage, which is just kind of a generic term for it, for someone who's particularly adroit at forcing their worldview on reality. Just doing it as a raw flex of metaphysical power is very hard. So another way of putting it is the game presumes that all beliefs can be true and can be real. If you are injured, you could use a orgone accumulator to do it. You could use some weird science. You could use intercessory prayer. You could summon Mikael, avatar of fire, to rekindle the inner light. You could make a pact with one of the Ibli to have somebody help you. You could use cutting-edge surgery All of these things work, but they kind of depend on you having access to this kind of spark that lets you manipulate reality. It is the avatar. It is the weird thing that has a questionable nature, as in it is not completely defined in the setting. I tend to prefer an interpretation where that avatar is either an abstraction or it is something weird and alien, but it's the part of you that lets you magic good, and it lets you magic good with somebody having commentary on it. So there's uh, just like a wraith has a shadow or the a vampire has their beast. There's another thing that is kind of tugging at you, but as opposed to it, just pulling you towards oblivion in the other two examples, you, you aren't entirely sure what the avatar's agenda is. Your character likely draws a worldview from a extant culture or from a set of phenomenon they have experienced. So your character acts through a lens of a certain cultural idea of how the world around them could change. Your character may believe that the most efficient way to change reality is interfacing with the celestial bureaucracy, that there is a hierarchy of beings and entities that if you address them appropriately, you can change the world around you. Another one may simply believe that humanity is heir to psychic powers. Another one may believe that we are literally gods and through a process of kind of auto-deification and realizing our true nature, we can change the world around us. The problem with this being the case is if everyone's beliefs can influence reality, anyone who can get a monopoly on belief and direct that collective action has immense abilities to reorder the world. The game is set up with a few basic factions. The simplest is the technocracy, which or the technocratic union, which realizes this effect. They refer to it as the enlightened anthropic principle that the human mind with sufficient enlightenment, capital E, has the ability to do what they call spontaneous model generation, and that some of these are sustainable and some of them are not. And their goal is to make reality safe and that we can improve the world and we can get to a better tomorrow, but we need to do it in a ordered way. As I am fond of saying, they are a meritocratic group pursuing excellence and safety. The problem is they want to be the group in charge. They want to choose what things in the meritocracy are rewarded, and they want to make the choices of what things are safe and unsafe to pursue. 
Another group, the Nefandi, just want to kind of see the destruction of everything. They either want to reduce the world to ash, maybe they believe that life is a poor choice and they're antinatalist to the extreme. They could want to trade it to some outer being for divine power, like your Cthulhu worshippers or what have you. Or they could just see the world as kind of a fallen state and they just want to have fun in it. So they are kind of the dark tempter group within it. You have the marauders, which are in some way, for lack of a better term, insane. They are the example of a way of seeing the world that is so alien that others cannot understand it. It is the problem, the excess of freedom, as it were. And then you have a few other groups, the traditions, the the notional good guys, the thing you're probably playing, the, the, the mage version of the Camarilla, as it were, that believe that there are ways to unleash human potential in such a way that we don't all die, but in such a way that we allow freedom to flourish. And then you have the disparates who believe that this course of action so far that the traditions have undertaken has not gone out well, and they generally embrace a set of tightly tied cultural practices and a sleeper or mortal community that they want to protect. Uh, Magic itself is arranged both kind of diegetically and non-diegetically into nine big buckets. The arts, as it were, for the game are the spheres, and they govern very big things, and their names are the opposite of poetic. Um, (laughs) You have... (laughs) <laughs> prime matter mind correspondence time spirit entropy uh, they're, they're it's what's on the tin and the mage power stat is arete which previously was kind of treated as a way of understanding like as your arete increased you became more understanding of the ways of the world but in the latest edition is it's just the power stat it's your metaphysical oomph um which i both like and don't like I kind of like the idea that as your Arite increases, there's some sort of understanding of the world that is shared by everyone. But M20 very much has a everything is subjective and no one is right idea to it. The basic group in mage in a place is a chantry. The term that is still sometimes used for a group of mages is a cabal. I prefer not to use that. It has too many connotations to it. So I use terms like the group. And most of the time, that's good enough for it. It's nice and straightforward. Exactly. If you want a better collective noun, my other recommendation would be a uh, a calamity, a happenstance, an accident, or an explosion of mages. I think all of those are acceptable, and that's kind of that's kind of mage. Uh, the, the the thing that keeps this all in check is the power of mortals to say no. There is a weight to the to reality that is already out there, and sometimes mortal belief stands athwart a mage's attempt to change reality and just yells stop that is the first and last time i have quoted william f buckley jr (laughs) and that force is represented either in unbelief which is a thing that kind of erodes away magical things the other is paradox which is kind of like magic damage that can hold you down and restrain your ability to do magic mages do not have magic points they do not have spell slots so it is always a question of will more magic just make it worse? And there are a number of mechanics to have that bear down on you. And that's kind of the core of the game for better or for worse. You could totally package that entire description and just put it as a soundbite out into the world and say, this is mage. And I think people would probably get a lot out of that rather than sitting and reading the 700 page M20 core book. That is entirely reasonable. 
So I have now established a term I'm going to use a bunch of times. And I guess the other thing is when you're doing an effect, you need to garb it in the trappings of your worldview. It's not always done with a wink and a nod, but the idea is if your character thinks that they can change lead into gold through an alchemical transformation, they need to do the alchemical transformation. It'll mm-hmm. probably work, what for them being a mage doing magic, but they need to go through the steps. And that is another limiter on the seemingly infinite arbitrary power of mages. There is finite time. It may not go well. And at the end of the day, a furry chainsaw in the form of a werewolf is going to be able to eviscerate you before you've said the second syllable of your incantation to Raphael, Lord of Thunder. Or a glass cannon called a changeling may come and ruin your day. The glassest of cannons, yes. They too are vulnerable to the sphere of gun in general, I believe. In general. There's uh, C20, like the the 20th anniversary edition, they kind of beefed it up a lot, I'd say. Okay. It's, it's, they're still not werewolves or vampire level durability, but yeah. They're still more vulnerable to the sphere of gun than they are to your math teacher anymore. Yes, that is, (laughs) I guess that's good. With all of that about Mage, I think a couple parallels that would be helpful for a Changeling player to kind of understand that, if, if I were to kind of frame that in Changeling-ish terms, I almost think of it as in the same way that, you know, Mages have avatars. That's their specialness. That's what gives them this metaphysical connection to something mystical or enlightened or whatever their term is going to be. Changelings have their connection to the Dreaming, which is the source of all of their power beyond the standard fleshy, meaty human stuff that they have. And on top of that, with the performance of magic or the use of that power, I guess you could say if mage spheres are like the changeling arts, the difference is that mage spheres are a lot more fluid. You can build your own ad hoc sort of effects much more much more directly. But at the same time, they're kind of constrained by using the same processes and instruments over and over again. Whereas changelings, they have their bunks to do cantrips and just kind of invent something on the spot. Maybe with some repetition, but in my games at least, I like to reward players who come up with something new every time they do they do a cantrip. So there's there's that. And then unbelief, banality, very similar to each other. So Well they they also share the thing that every World of Darkness game seemingly has. Something bad happened five hundred years ago and we're not allowed to yes. have nice things anymore. <laughs> also um, that there's always a question I have about the nature of the sundering and the shattering. Mm-hmm. So in revised and mage, we get the idea that there are kind of three things that control reality. One, there is some sort of basic nature to reality, which is immutable to the best we know. The second part is there is an inertia to a place and an inertia to history that kind of sets what's doable in an area. And then the final part is the interaction between the consensus, what everyone around you believes and what the mage believes. And when I look at the changeling system and the magic we see in it, because changeling is a game that seemingly has like three sets of magics. You have treasures, you have places, legends, and weird stuff. And then you have like the arts and realms stuff and maybe unleashing. I'm just not really familiar with it. Mage, we just have the sphere system and everything is through the lens of spheres. So like, I like the idea that maybe during the sundering and maybe I mean shattering that the power that the first men had to shape that which had already been formed broke and mages were stuck only being able to reform within the elements of reality and Mm -hmm. changelings were stuck with the ability to deal with the mythic power that seemingly is tied to their essence. 
and and this kind of explains to me why changelings work off of narrative physics while mages work off of more of a seemingly physics engine in terms of what the spheres can do like there's just a whole bunch of things that mages can't do that changelings can and when those reality laws cooled the changelings had all the tricks memorized and mages kind of had to cobble it together again from first pieces it's kind of like the fact that at work i'm really good at excel and i have a colleague that is a skilled programmer in any number of languages and sometimes i can just cobble something together in excel faster than their clearly superior programming abilities and in this metaphor the changelings are me using excel to hack together something because they have this long list of weird glitches that they found in reality and this kind of intuitive way of going about the world versus the programmer who is building an effect from first principle from spheres and i kind of like the idea that mages and changelings were caught by the same event but they just kind of got stuck in different ponds when the tide went out and now they're kind of looking at each other being like what are you doing i don't know what are you doing and it just doesn't make any sense to each other and there's some sort of uh, meta rule that that would explain everything that uh, that's one of my weird theories to help the two work together slightly better the way i think i've cobbled from how at least changelings think about it according to the books and maybe this actually works as to what's really going on there's these different realms or powers or whatever so you have the dreaming and you have the autumn world which i think would be thought of as the consensus in a sense in in mage terms and the thing that's different from changeling and at least some of the sort of paradigms of mages is these things are alive and they have opinions and they have feelings they're maybe not rational beings you can talk to but they are they have personalities And the changeling magic is about bringing the dreaming generally into the autumn world. And basically bunks, for instance, would be Mm. convincing the autumn world to lighten up a little bit and let the changeling glamour through kind of thing. But you're still shaping from the dreaming, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That was another thing that I was feeling like the idea that changeling magic is much more sentient. seemingly than mage magic mages are colder and draw from human inspiration there is no sense in mage that the magician and the magic are cooperating it is very much a do as thou wilt thing except for paradigms that have like another layer around it but like when i look at the changeling magic system and so on like they have the ability to have effects that persist across generations seemingly grow stronger with time and are broad-based in an and and can enchant kind of an area and we don't really have an analog to that we we just kind of have this procedural system except kind of at the highest of arts where you get to like six or seven dots and the question is why can you do this and the answer is f you that's why and and a lot of this came through in isle of the mighty which was a the audience cannot see my scare quotes crossover (laughs) book between mage and changeling where periodically it's like oh yeah there's this changeling effect that's been here for 740 years no one understands it but it turns everyone who farts in this area into a goose and and people are like what sphere effect is that is unlike that is the sphere of bullshit which is the native language of changeling and i love it i believe that location is found in northern wales probably yeah yeah Well, I think changelings also have kind of a built-in advantage in that fundamentally they're all striving for the same thing, which, as Josh said, is to almost maybe not necessarily reunite the dreaming with the autumn world, but bring the dreaming into the autumn world. And mages, they're all kind of pulled in, in various directions. And my sense of mage is that the goal of the character, the, the path to ascension, has more to do with figuring out how the world works, which is going to be different for every single one of them. 
changelings for all their differences or most changelings for all their differences share this common approach to their magic and its place within themselves and their place within the world. So that doesn't necessarily unite them on its own, but it enables all of them to kind of warp reality in the same effective way. The other key difference to me between the two is the importance of story in each. The vague sense I get is Mage is fundamentally a game about forging your own story where changeling can do the same thing, but changes changelings seemingly are more powerful when they are recapitulating a story that already exists or participating in one that's unfolding. Yes. Mages on the other hand are so radically individual in the way they go about the world. They do not really get power from stories. There is a mechanic called mythic threads that basically says, if you can make this rhyme with something (laughs) else uh, in a, in a cultural sense, you gain power from that. But I think that's also what draws me to mage. I just, I don't want to recapitulate certain archetypes over and over again. Changeling doesn't require you to do that, but oh man, if you really want to lean into the knight in shining armor thing, it really seems like it's it's perfectly fine with you doing that. Where in mage, sometimes you're like, oh, you're that guy. Okay, I guess we can have another urban shaman like that, but we were trying to have an interesting game over here, but you can do that in the meantime. It's real <laughs> passive aggressive about it. But yeah, that importance of story seems to vary wildly between the two games in a, in a way I find interesting. So, yeah. so for, for mage, how do you... So you're talking about, okay, you know, we're talking about individualism or not, maybe not individualism, but each mage has a different individual, potentially an individual kind of story, but you're still having a group of player characters at a table and it doesn't seem like one of like apocalypse world or something where they're all telling different stories vaguely connected. Like it seems like it's more, or at least that's the impression I get. How do you actually bring together these very different kind of stories and very different type of goals and whatever into into a game like one chronicle are you asking that as a storyteller or is that more of a mechanical and setting question i'd say advice for the table but you know if you can draw from things that you got from the books that's extra cool (laughs) sure so revise take a drink Uh, joke to the audience there are certain tropes and such that i have established in a number of podcast episodes that i always go back to and say it and in a nod to uh, self-knowledge i tend to call them out whenever there's a reference to invisible sun that's a take a drink moment whenever it says hey revised explained this really well that's a take the drink moment the kind of the idea behind that is revised has this reputation in mage that it was the the gritty dark everything is broken we can't have nice things anymore version of mage which was true in the marketing material and true in like the first one and a half books but quickly the authors either didn't get the memo or ignored it in a way that I found beautiful. And since revised by word count was the largest of the editions, it is this large, varied, weird thing. And also the writers did not presume that you got it. So they tended to explain things a little bit more rather than just repeating them as happened frequently in second edition and seemingly happens in M20. That is not to say that either of those other editions is written poorly. I just found in a lot of cases, the writing of revised resonated better with me in a way that I understood. And it talks about the idea of there are different types of paradigms. You may have a closed paradigm. You think 
yours is the only way to do magic. And frankly, you do not know how those other people are doing it. Then you have a level above that that says there are other ways of doing it. Mine happens to be the best. Then there's another way of doing it, which is everyone's kind of doing the same thing and it seems to work. But I like this. I get it. This is my home language. I know we're in this paradigm. I know where the beer store is, so I'm going to stick with it. And then there is this open paradigm where you just kind of mix and match weird elements and paradigm your way of viewing the world and doing magic is intimate and personal. I literally had a Twitter thread early today where someone is like, how do I run a game where Akashiyana, which is a East Asian martial artist kind of stereotype group and a hermetic, which is a kind of the embodiment of the Western occult tradition of you need to memorize 11 different languages and do a very exacting ritual. How do we get those two to cooperate? And to me, the question is kind of a mix of things like in a setting that has a big, bad enemy, you are going to be forced to work together. I, I assume in a changeling game, if there's a big enough threat from the shadow court or something, some, uh, some autumn group is doing something. We don't care if we're telling different stories. We have to band together to survive. And in first edition mage, that was very much how it was done. The technocracy was everywhere. They could literally call down orbital nuclear strikes Everyone had to work together in this weird super friends way. If we were going to survive, there was still going to be internal tension, but we we had that gun to our head. And to me, I think it requires a little bit of creativity. Like, let's take that Hermetic and that Akashic. Paradigmatically, both may believe in an umbral hierarchy. They just talk to different branches of it. One knows Goetia, and the other one knows all the people that report up to Nara'o or the August Personage of Jade or something like that. They may share like core beliefs. Both of them very much to believe in a type of self-mastery. The Hermetic cares about the perfection of the will, and the Akashic cares about the perfection of the mind and body to to free us from distraction and other things that will that will keep us down it takes a little bit of creativity but the trick with mage is your starting willpower is five these are not weak-willed people so your default is probably to disagree with people and you need to find a way to, to to work across lines and to me that is the beauty of mage that is the fun part and now you get to say hey you did this thing where you breathed in such a way that you were literally able to enter the high umbra what the dink is that and that starts up this conversation between characters um it, it is a game it is a philosophy course kind of masquerading uh as an rpg from a storyteller perspective it is about figuring out what the character's motives are and either finding a way to weave them together well this akashic needs to take out the person who killed their master this hermetic is looking for ancient lore it just turns out that the person who killed them happens to be a master of ancient lore. So uh, coincidence is the technical term. And that is something that is repeated a lot in Invisible Sun. Take a drink. And then sometimes they just have shared goals. They both want to kill the same guy. They're both fighting to save the same neighborhood. And the conflict between those, because all mages have to be strong-willed people, I think is where a lot of interesting story comes from. Characters will disagree often on the mechanism and the right means, but they will often agree on an ultimate goal. And sometimes it is the opposite. They don't agree on an ultimate goal, but they have similar tools at their disposal. And a game to me is kind of about balancing those two things. Did I answer the question at all? Yes. So, <laughs> okay. So, so a little, little follow-up. Would you say those techniques, it's almost, not mechanically, but everything else, it's it's like you're doing a crossover game, it sounds like, when you're running Mage. All Mage games are crossover games, yes. Yes. So does that mean if you could do a Mage game and the mechanics support it, and, and a few other little basic things, you could say 
use those same techniques in a crossover mage changeling game or even the other world of darkness games or something stranger like does that also fit or does it think that might i don't know dilute the themes of mage or something i think all crossover games partially dilute the the themes unless the crossover helps elucidate it i try to avoid super friends games Mm -hmm. i run games where night folk are relatively rare they know about each other, but they know little of each other. Pook and I are theoretically in the same city. We're dimly aware that the other person exists. I don't know what Pook mm-hmm. looks like, and we could have walked by each other any number of times. We have. Yes. <laughs> well, so that, that gets back to my question. How do mages yeah. do that? They all look like people. Uh, they do all look like people. So we, we get a couple answers to the question, how do mages clump together? We get the idea that once you awaken, other mages kind of get an idea that you're out there. And mages kind of keep an eye on newspaper headlines looking for weird stuff, and maybe they go investigate. Some groups in the game are much better at that. Other times you find other mages because you awaken within a tradition. One of the things mages always done poorly is the idea of mage lineages, because you quickly get the brain spider of if mages are disproportionately likely to produce baby mages, why don't we have a mage breeding program, which is a game that nobody wants to play except for the progenitors. And so there's a whole bunch of casual kind of things i i in most games i find that there is already a contrivance that has brought the group together there are political organizations that can be used to connect groups across the world and you generally have a local connection which is the idea that mages kind of know what other mages in their area are doing as well as high level connections that if you are part of a a political group that is that is large has the ability to put you in contact with the appropriate person. The question of crossover games is generally one where you have a very specific goal, a very weird background, or some sort of external force that has brought you together. Yeah. Uh, the the technocracy is interested in wiping out human imagination for some definitions of imagination. I I imagine changelings aren't a particular fan of that. So that is a case where they may have strange bedfellows between mages and changelings. There, though, the difference in tactics is going to become wildly obvious, where one group is going to try and muster a paramilitary force, and the other one may undergo a, a campaign of tactical frivolity to just make the acts of the technocracy utterly ridiculous and to either force them to loosen up or for the consensus to kind of uh, stop taking that element of it so seriously. The things I kind of get out of Changeling are this sense of kind of abundance in a weird way that, yeah, magic is always there. You just have to do it. Where despite the fact that mages can indiscriminately use magic seemingly, they kind of treat it like a precious finite resource that needs to be concealed. The way in which you reveal yourself to, to sleepers in both seems like it needs to be very careful. We also get the idea that there are certain spaces that are kind of interesting to both groups. Again, changeling magic is fundamentally different seemingly from mage magic. So I could very much see a group banding together briefly to investigate a weird thing. And then theoretically you have the question of where is the dreaming or mage is going to run into changelings there. I have my own particular answer to that, but you can have a internal force, a external force or a chronicle contrivance that kind of helps bring the groups together. To me, they are generally rare enough that they're probably not going to bump into each other. That's my read of things. The way I see it to, especially to avoid the super friends thing, which I, I, I'm not, I've done it and it's weird and not necessarily what I want to do. <laughs> the way I see it, you know, you look at Mage, you look at Changeling, and this applies to the other most of the other World of Darkness games. They're very big games. You could have a mixed technocracy tradition. You could have a 
something where like Thaline commoners and Seely Shi are working together, right? Like in Changeling or something like that. But you, when you're combining, if you were to combine, say, Changeling and Mage, you would narrow down both games, what you're actually doing, and then broadening it between the two, if that makes sense. You could find, might not even be all the traditions, but you find like when you're making characters, you'd have like tradition characters that happen to mesh with these particular kiths that you're choosing from or something like that. I'm just saying that's that's sort of where I'm thinking about. And you kind of create themes that way. Like this this chronicle has this kind of theme by narrowing it down. That's kind of getting into what you were saying there, but that, I, don't know, I just want to throw in my two cents on that one. And I think it's also the case that we need to consider what the term chronicle means. I don't know about the two of you, but most of the gaming I've done that has been an ongoing game, I haven't met more than twice a month and it's generally close to, to once a month. So now my idea of a long running chronicle is 10 sessions. Yeah. And if that is one festival and that could easily represent the planning meeting and fallout of one festival where my chantry has our one random visit to a freehold in a year because we made this agreement two centuries ago with the founding of our town and we both have to go through the motions of it every 10 years and we don't know what's supposed to happen that to me is one of those things we're short enough everyone gets to have their themes without losing anything you're just kind of focusing on a particular area for a particular period of time and it's enough time to be like hey let's talk about the mechanical implications of this or mages high banality or low banality my table rule mages are incredibly high banality all of them <laughs> and and you get to have a little bit of fun with that and then you break up and then you play a new game because to me that's kind of what role playing is these days yeah like i don't i can't think of any chronicle i've run since middle school that's gone more than 20 sessions yeah Wow, so. 20 sessions. No, that's that's, <laughs> that's like, like that was back in my 20s before I had children and might have been a LARP, but the, yeah. the 20, sevens is, the 20 sessions is the upper bound, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. To the earlier point that you made, Terry, about mages being liminal figures, it's also the case that a crossover game doesn't have to mean every single session is going to involve changelings and mages partying or whatever every mm -hmm. single time. So... Because mages kind of have all 10 fingers and 10 different little pies of supernatural stuff, there, there can be a thread of interacting with the fae and then, oh no, we have to put that aside for now because the technocracy is about to, I don't know, bulldoze this node or whatever. So they, they have that advantage of kind of dancing around between lots of different things that have something to do with magic. Anything that is supernatural or out of the ordinary, potentially they will notice so no one other splat is going to capture all of their attention, probably. Yeah, unless you play a game where you kind of get rid of them. And and if we are defining crossover so loosely as to include one or two sessions with another creature that could be ascribed to another line, that to me is where, in Changeling at least, all the weird Thalane get to shine and the Galane get to come out. And mm. you kind of get to make up things. You get to ignore the she if you want to. You can bring in the fact that I love, I like Changeling the Dreaming generally more than Changeling the Lost, except for I do like the notion of the true fae and I do like the location of the hedge. Mm. I, those are two that I bring in to the point where I am thinking of replacing parts of the penumbra with the hedge. In fact, I wrote a piece of short fiction that I used in an episode describing that. I think I heard that. Yeah. On those scales, you, you can certainly run with it. And again, the two give you binocular vision. What is the changeling view of the dreaming versus what is the mage view of the dreaming? What is the mage notion of imagination and how it can be this 
terrible force in the world. Like uh, when an Afandi summons a umbral horror to crush you, they are harnessing their imagination to consume your soul. So, so the idea of like, is that glamour? I don't know. In changeling <laughs> like, terms, we call that a bummer. Yeah. So. Um, so, so on those very small things, the other thing is I think each gives a unique way of investigating a theme from the other game. So for instance, I like the interpretation of Kith as being the embodiment of a dream of some sort. So you have the standard thing where a red cap is uh, dreams of hunger and consumption. Is there a very rare fae that is the embodiment of Ascension? Is there a Golconda fae out there? I think the answer is yes. They're not very common. They're probably in something else and they probably fit in kind of weird. But oh man, and to, to have like a, a dream master in mage interface with a changeling who just understands the notion of dream in a fundamentally different way. Do I think that is going to be two absolutely amazing sessions where this, this view of the world kind of smacks right up into someone who gets it, but in a different way? Heck yeah. Yeah. So just to segue from that a little bit, I do have kind of one broad question about the notion of these games, kind of how they synergize, how they align. In terms of themes and moods, which would you say are the themes and moods of Mage that do align well with Changeling and the ones that very specifically do not? The idea that imagination and hope is incredibly powerful, I think exists mm. strongly in both. Definitely. The idea that cultures are real and valuable and true, and they persist across time despite our efforts to kind of quash them, but they still need to be actively maintained. In a mage game, that is a mix of nurturing the community and nurturing the magic. And in a changeling game, it seems to be that is more of recapitulating maybe sacred stories. I kind of have a wider idea of changeling in my head where there are changelings out there that reenact or redo maybe the sacred stories of Southeast Asia or that are kind of your standard early Christian pilgrims that run around to do good. And those are the dreams that they reenact and draw power from and hope to instill in mortals to make the world a more wondrous place, capital W. Another thing I think they both have is the idea that everything is temporary. Mm. Both deal with the fact that they are chains of understanding from a past and that if you lose any one link, the chain breaks. Once that changeling story stops being reenacted, it is gone and it is taken by the mists and maybe remembrance will help us sometimes. Once that understanding of the world from a mage dies maybe you have a grimoire or maybe you have emerald spirit but something beautiful and precious is lost mages arguably depending on how you want to define it either play a longer game or a shorter game but they are both subject to it vampires on the other hand everything they do is entirely fabricated like there is it is vampires doing vampire stuff and they can be around for centuries whereas in werewolf it is familial and it is lineal and you theoretically got your marching orders from Gaia themselves. And I think Changeling and Mage both have that thing that like, it, it is almost this absurd thing of, yes, there is no external way of verifying this thing that is rich and beautiful and I want to exist, but I need to keep passing on my wisdom or in the Changeling case, telling my story or this light will go out from the world. Themes that do not necessarily uh, jive is to me, Mage is fundamentally a game where it is mages and mortals. In a way, I, I think Mage loses a lot if it is a Hogwarts game, which is mages dealing with other mages in magey places. 
I, I don't know if that's necessarily the same thing with Changeling. That's like making Changeling be like a Hogwarts game is kind of like making Vampire be like a Hogwarts game, maybe more. <laughs> okay. Like it's done a lot and both me and Puka try not to do it in our games is probably okay. what we say. I mean, yes, but also as in our recent conversation with Josh Heath from Werewolf, the podcast, which we talked about, Changeling and Werewolf both are games where kinship is so important as a theme. And I think in Mage, it's a lot, it's a lot easier for your character to be sort of isolationist. Changelings can't do that, or it's very unwise generally for them to do that. Yeah. The other thing is Changeling has a notion of balance yes. that Mage does not. <laughs> it should, but it does not. Yeah, you're yeah. not like, oh, you got too much quintessence, not enough paradox. That's bad. Yeah. That's exactly. Bad. There is a bad thing we want to keep low, but the top end of that is really not there. And the other one is just the sheer ability of you to change the destiny of a planet. Yeah. Doesn't seem to be there in Changeling. Like, it's not really common in Mage unless you take the, like, the technocratic conspiracy worldview where every major mover and shaker in world history was either an accident or secretly a mage. I, I don't know if Changeling having that. It, it doesn't. I think they, but... both, they both have the change okay. the destiny of a town, definitely. Well, I'd say that's where it's more similar in that it both sort of thematically fits and there's no mechanics for it. Yeah. In Changeling, you change the destiny of a person much more often than you even nudge the destiny of a planet. Yeah. In Mage, to me, some of the basic units of action for a lot of these groups are the community, the the country, the civilization, the people, as opposed to the person. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, that may just be my understanding of Changeling and my understanding of Mage. I think those are reasonable ways to frame it. Yeah. Yeah. Changeling's more likely to have... Like you could be musing a politician, right? Mm-hmm. But you're musing that politician it, it, and other changelings are doing other things. And you're not like, there's definitely nothing like the technocracy in terms of, there is some of like, she do tend to in actually inhabit powerful people, which I'm not sure I've seen mm-hmm. happen in play, but it is in the books. Or pretty people, which uncomfortably is often equated with power. Yeah. But it's, and and you'll have them working together to make sure that they have money. Maybe like a rich bastard's guide to changeling might make sense. (laughs) But you don't get something like the syndicate or even the level of action of the euthanatos or the hermetics in terms of huge group trying to shift, shift society a certain way. It's more like you're individually trying to make certain shifts and then maybe you're working with others for mutual aid, but it's not a collective action towards a common goal kind of thing. Yeah. And and part of this is me imposing the game I want to have happen. I am fundamentally an institutionalist. Institutions are the only way humans have of perpetuating knowledge and action across large scale generations that do not require a familial group, which is remarkably vague. I have just described an institution. (laughs) And I think in a game where you want to have hope, the idea of a single radical doing something I think is frankly quaint. Yes. Well, okay. When I said that about Changeling, you do have the Fomorians and the Thalion and the Shadow Court doing collective action because common to all, maybe just beyond World of Darkness, but you've done another take a drink moment. Bad guys can always cooperate. Yeah, Yeah. bad guys cooperate. (laughs) So the bad guys are good at collective action in Changeling. Yeah. The good guys aren't. (laughs) Part of that has to do with sort of the overall Changeling ethos too, because I think they see it as planting seeds that will eventually grow and that's sort of their individual to individual kind of action that doesn't mean they can't also collectively act but 
it's more valuable for them personally in terms of restoring their glamour to build up those those personal connections and hope that that works out for the best, hope that that eventually a forest is created from all these seeds that they're planting. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the mage is trying to raise a crop, but it is very obvious when someone is trying to do that, especially when they're passing over from the air. Yes. In your opinion, for if you're taking, if you're running a C20 game and you're having M20 as like NPCs kind of thing, how much do changelings need to worry about mages, be it t- traditions or technocracy or whatnot, coming and taking away their freeholds to steal all the glamorous quintessence? Probably not, mostly because in mage, quintessence isn't really that important, and the benefit it gives you is only really useful for high-level sphere stuff. So quintessence, which is mage juice, is there's a small number of effects where you have to provide quint, and those are specifically described by the game. Like, to do this effect, you need to put a point of quintessence in it. Uh, Like, uh, doing aggravated damage with prime two, which may not make sense to a lot of people, but yeah, you, you juice up your punch so you can punch gooder, and suddenly the vampire, like, comes away with a handprint on their face. Mages are both particular about how they get the quintessence and kind of what it tastes like. So in mage, we have the notion of uh, quintessence, which is free and and you you pick up. When I interface with other night folk, generally their quintessence, their special juice is in the form of tas, which is material and has a flavor to it. And mages very much care about that flavor. So the only case where I think a mage would take over a freehold would be some sort of case where either they were bad guys and they're like, hey, the effects of your freehold are seeping out into the neighborhood and, and kids are using crayons on the walls and we just can't have this and they bulldoze the freehold or somebody is doing a particular type of magic and the flavor that generates from the freehold whether it be hopeful artistic nightmarish some adjective that describes the juice that comes out of the freehold particularly matches with what that mage is trying to do in all the world of darkness games getting the juice that way i would argue except for vampire blood is not worth it in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, you could set up a game where someone thought that was the case mm. and was woefully mistaken, but just the mechanical benefits of a minus one to your difficulty isn't that big because a starting level mage is rarely going to be rolling against a difficulty higher than like six or seven, maybe. So a minus one doesn't do a huge amount. And especially in the M20 system where you can get a minus one modifier by spending a little bit of extra time, I just don't see it as being worth it. You could come up with a contrivance where you could say, hey, we're trying to connect these two nodes or the existence of this freehold is interfering with our ability to do something else where it's more of a, for lack of a better term, like Robert Moses magical zoning issue than anything else. But out of the box, I'm not seeing it. That's terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) The greatest of the autumn people. It's funny, though, because in the Changeling books, I feel like half the time you see mages referenced in a crossover context, it's those mages. They're so inscrutable and always trying to suck up our freeholds with straws like that's mages to changelings half the time yeah yeah i think that's a first ed thing like that's also what werewolves describe mages as and second ed to an extent but yeah thankfully tamped down a bit that's why i was asking specifically in the 20th anniversary maybe we can move but uh i mean it's still you can still do whatever in a game and maybe that'd be fun antagonist for your Mm -hmm. game but uh we do have some questions from our Discord audience. Bring it, Effers. Yeah. Because otherwise we'll be sitting here for four hours and still asking questions and chatting about Easily. This, so. Easily. Well, to start, we have a question from Fayhammer about uh, spheres and perceiving fey reality. How do spheres do that? So 
the the notion of chimerical reality is something that has been canonically answered in one or two places, but it's kind of a boring answer where it's like mind one, spirit one. Okay. Uh, to me, you kind of have to answer the question of what is chimerical reality in your game and what do you want the notion of the dreaming to be? To me, it is more interesting if a mage does research and kind of gets to retune Mm-hmm. any of their spheres to do it. So for instance, a etherite who spends a lot of time understanding the mythopoetic dimension of the periodic table would be able to detect Caliburn with matter one or pr- and prime one to know that there is something special about this thing. I am a big fan of letting everyone kind of access something because uh, canonically in mage, the sphere that most is the, is like the changeling sphere is mind which I like because each supernatural type kind of lines up with a sphere. If you want to do stuff to vampires, you need to add matter to it. If you want to do it to werewolves, you have to add spirit. If you want to do it to mummies, better add prime. Hmm. If you want to do something to race, you get a mixed answer as to whether or not it's entropy prime or spirit. I'm really hoping we finally get a group that you just F up with correspondence. I'm really waiting for that. Uh, But for changelings, I think it is the fact that the notion of story should touch on all paradigms because fundamentally what a paradigm is, is a story about how reality works. Hmm. It just happens to bear a different kind of inspection than maybe the myths that underlie changeling. And I say myths, not in the untrue sense, but in that um, kind of narrative that we tell ourselves way. So interacting with chimerical reality, the raw system will give you the answer of mind. Um, The other one I will go to is prime. Prime is the sphere that kind of is not quite metamagic, but magic qua magic. It is the sphere you use to counter someone else's magic or to pull juice out of the tapestry to, to do an effect. And to me, because Prime has the ability to make something do ag damage, you would always have the ability to interface with a chimerical entity by making the thing you're dealing with so real that it can affect that chimerical reality. So someone who has taken chimerical damage, to me, a a healer with access to Prime 3 should be able to make their surgical tools work on the chimerical aspect of that. I am much more liberal with it, but the canon answer is generally going to be Mind 1, Mind 2, Spirit 1. Yeah. There's also the, I like your idea of talking about, you know, you could do this and it would detect Caliburn, but it wouldn't detect like a weird uh, Pokemon based Chimera. Yeah. Because in Changeling, with the exception of like particularly banal places and people, there's, there's a chimerical aspect all over the place. And if it was simply you just this basic effect that lots of mages would do offhand, suddenly that just doesn't work to me <laughs> like in mage yeah. it's like or in any game that has something like that you're like uh why are they not seeing this all the time and like screw them worrying about changelings they're just going to be like what <laughs> like the whole world is weird so yeah and it's one of those things for me so we get the idea in m20 that everything can have a resonance to it which mm-hmm. is kind of the magical signature the the psycho reactive emotive force that humans being in the world imparts on the things around them in m20 we really get an idea of psychometry that our feelings are imparted to the things that we work with. And to me, a mage that does those things would be able to detect elements of the dreaming as kind of being a different flavor that they can't quite identify. I don't know if you've ever like, when I first started eating, say, Indian cuisine or Vietnamese cuisine, there were certain flavors I couldn't quite place. I'm like, oh, and and to me, it was just, oh, that tastes like Indian. To me, a mage with enough experience would get that. Like this kind of tastes fairy-y. 
or it tastes weird. I don't know what's going on, but there's something here. If you're going to have a game with those elements in it and you're not using it explicitly to gatekeep some power phenomenon or way of interface, I would always give some weird way for people to pick up on it and then see if they can make sense of it within their paradigm. The longer we can put off using the changeling word in our mage game or the mage word in our changeling game, I think the more interesting that experience is going to be. Uh, It's kind of a rule that I picked up about cocktail parties from Adam Savage, which is always try and delay as long as possible asking what someone else does for a living. <laughs> um, <laughs> Excellent. And to me, when I introduce odd things in Mage, we have that moment. I, I like that idea, though, of the paradigm also sort of informing how someone... Because you can, you can roll awareness and detect something weird is happening, but then how you interpret it. Because when you look at who the Fae are in all of these different traditions... You might have a chorister that says, oh, those are the angels that didn't take a side in the war in heaven. Or you might have Mm -hmm. a cultist of ecstasy who says those are semi-sentient expressions of DMT-related nervous system phenomena. Like all of these different possibilities that can be translated into how they deal with it magically. And I think one of the powerful things about crossover is they still get to be an exception to that. Um, There's nothing requiring a fae to observe a mage's rules. In the same way that vampires just don't adhere to what everyone else thinks about them. They've got their own thing. And I I think that is also weird and powerful. So in in the same way that like if a changeling says, oh, they're just prodigals with access to other arts or something like that. Well, can your arts do this? (laughs) And and vice versa. Like, well, they're just using a limited kind of linear magic. Well, there's been this enchantment in this area that has lasted for over 200 years. Show me a, a linear path that can do that. Uh, it is important when having a crossover game, one of the things you can always have is there is more to heaven and earth Horatio. And I think that's one of the powers yeah. that crossover can bring to it. It's one of my favorite quotes to drop into anywhere. Yeah. The, the linear path thing, like we mentioned in leashing, but also Fae realm, you can explicitly target magic with your magic. And, and, and there's examples in the books of this. So it's like your cantrips, um, they look a lot less linear that way, I think, and more mm-hmm. just very confusing and maybe creative creative but like anyway yeah it's not the same as sorcery pass yeah and the interface of arts and realms can do some real weird stuff uh, in a way that linear paths can't yeah well moving on to the next question from sanjigu i think this could be summed up with a a single word which is domain so demesne demesne however you want to pronounce yeah it's it's domain so uh m20 introduced a background into mage the ascension called domain d-e-m-e-s-n-e i ended up saying it demance because playing too much exalted and then yeah that'll do it to you (laughs) (laughs) you're like where are you at sleeping bro my demance so we get the idea in mage that when humans dream they have access to a zone called the Maya or the dream realm, which may or may not be or include the dreaming. When you're in it, you have the ability to interface with dream in some way, shape or form. We have never gotten really great rules for it. A character with the domain background has a personal area of that Maya that they seemingly have some control over. We only get one mechanic where this is useful. It is helpful for a mage navigating quiet, which is kind of a supernatural craziness of some sort where your character is no longer parsing reality as everyone else is. To me, the power of domain is it is a bridge that maybe the domain background is something that you can roll to prevent yourself or allow yourself to be enchanted by a changeling or to affect 
the the dream logic that they are using for an effect it can act as maybe another type of uh counter magic pool in kind of a weird way assuming that the person with the domain background it we are interpreting it as your ability to dream weave like to commit some sort of thought weft It would also theoretically give you the idea that if that mage were in the dreaming, they would have a little bit more understanding of what's happening. Is there a question specifically asking about mages in the dreaming, or is this a good chance for me to launch into that? There isn't specific. There is, just want to direct people, in C20 and also in Dreams and Nightmares, which is an earlier supplement, they do talk about this a fair amount from a changeling perspective on what is what is happening with someone's dreaming and what is the near dreaming and how they relate to each other, which I think would be mm-hmm. useful also for people to look at, but that's a thing where that could be a long deep dive for, for another episode. But anyway, just want to say yeah. that before we cut it. Sure. <laughs> is in kind of, and it's outlined and I don't have the book in front of me to prep for that, but uh, got it. Uh, Cause mage within Canon, we get a whole bunch of dream realms. We get mentions to the dream Lords and so on. And how that interfaces with changeling is like shoulder shruggy mm-hmm. to kind of show that I am a mage player though. Someone in my discord made an offhanded mention to what would a eight point domain look like. And I proceeded to write a roughly 20,000 word piece outlining a dream realm, which I have yet to publish and is probably the next one up. So I I have thoughts Mm -hmm. (laughs) on kind of how that works. But yes, uh, so domain is one of those things that could be useful while enchanted. There is no direct interaction between the two. I would allow someone to use it as a resistance stat if necessary, or do this annoying thing where they get to slightly tug at the effects that a changeling does you would be able to roll it and suddenly like Holly strike is no longer in the form of blazing leaves, but instead is a shard of glass that you happen to be able to protect yourself with using uh, thick clothing or a wall where otherwise you would have been eviscerated. It kind of is an idea that you have this understanding of the intuitive, slightly surreal logic, seemingly that changeling magic uses and you can nudge it. You can't quite stop it, but you can tilt it a little bit. So does that also let you do things in seekings in mage? No, okay. that would be far too useful. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't need an Arite discount. Yeah. Well, so that, I think, touches on the next question, which is from Blue Vox. This is actually, it was a couple questions that spawned a couple comments that spawned a couple more questions and more responses. I think the best way to frame it is to ask about reality zones, as they're defined in Mage, how those relate to witnesses, and whether the way changelings do their magic, if effectively that's the same as temporarily creating a small reality zone where dreaming stuff can happen. A reality zone in Mage is the idea that there is both a global notion of what is acceptable, but on smaller and smaller scales, as you delve into a community or a place, that place may have its own local notion of what is doable. This is not quite a full-fledged system in Mage. We get the idea that there are like, mythic weird places we get the idea that there are urban cities where everything is hard unless it's technology and we get the idea that there are primeval wilds where certain types of magic are doable and we do not get really good rules on how to shift them what the boundaries are if you ask me how to do this i would probably come up with a scale and a tag system to say that that like for instance this reality zone is particularly permissive this one is particularly punishing this one is fine with stories from this particular era this one is fine with magic that encourages a particular 
adjective. For instance, there could be a reality zone with the tag self-starter, where syndicate mages getting a start adventure, ecstatics trying to start a record label, all of their magics that go towards that end are going to be improved. Witnesses are the idea that who, when they see your effect, will go, you can't do that. And that is usually in terms of a, a notion of vulgarity, that what you're doing violates the laws of reality as the witness knows it. I don't really see that as a tie to what changelings do. Like, I don't really see a crossover there, except to say that changelings through bunks seem to have the idea that they need to placate the idea of pervasive myth and dream. That is their witness because the myths take care of everything else. Uh, so they, there's, you could say, is a different kind of reality zone that needs to be placated. And they really only grossly divide it seemingly maybe between freeholds everywhere else and the dreaming. So I, I kind of view that as a different phenomenon. Also in Mage, we have the idea of marauders, which have the ability to kind of exude their paradigm and worldview and rewrite the world around them as they go. And to me, that is the much more direct example of kind of a portable reality zone rewriting things, which brings up an interesting question. Do the Marauders look at Changelings and vice versa and go, this guy, this guy I get. Well, interestingly, so you saying that makes me think that that might actually be the best framing for it in the sense that Changelings and Marauders both are constantly living in their own reality zone. It's just that Marauders kind of inflict it by default on everyone else around them and Changelings kind of keep it on the inside until the moments when they need to let it out and invoke the weird. But my... My favorite mage NPC in the entire game, in the entire world of darkness, is found in a changeling book. Go figure. Uh, And that is Dustin Carver, who is a Verbena slipping further and further into quiet, who hangs out in a changeling freehold in Santa Cruz. He is immortal and fully convinced that he is an elf slash Vulcan slash something from Star Wars slash uh, lost boy from Peter Pan. So his quiet, his private reality is totally in sync with the changelings and through the use of because it was first edition spirit not mind he's able to perceive the dreaming and interact with Faye and is essentially enchanted all the time and his paradox flaws to have pointed ears so all of that you know suggests to me that that's that's where the parallel is again and another possibility for crossover is to think about how those sort of conflicting ideas of what reality actually is might bump into each other. Yeah. And if you want to get into antagonists for changeling, it's not like, I mean, that one, that's a very compatible marauder in changeling terms. If you look at, especially M20, how it talks about marauders and how changeling talks about banality in C20, it's not like all marauders would be low banality or compatible with the Mm -hmm. dreaming. You can definitely have high banality marauders too, or if you're using, you know, dark glamour marauders or all sorts of things there. So I'm I'm sure there are marauders that feel wholeheartedly that changelings are entirely the spawn of the devil. Yeah, that would be pretty banal (laughs) for them. I do think there is an interesting question, though. Is there some type of encounter where paradox spirits could be sicked on changelings or where a mage with appropriate magic could have the mists clean up after them. I think that would be a kind of an interesting question for a very narrow case and maybe for one scene. There's a few interesting changeling arts that actually interact with the mists directly. And and there's also the question of if a bunch of changelings are using weird effects or invoke the weird 
and there's mages there using vulgar effects. What does that mean? It's a whole other thing going on. It's like, if everything's broken anyway, like, what will the mists cover? Would it cover the whole thing? Would it just cover the changeling stuff specifically? That That's a interesting question. I don't know if I have an answer to right now. Mm-hmm. Someone else, I think, commented on the Discord. Actually, Josh, I think it might have been you <laughs> talking yeah. about using the mind sphere in order to kind of repair the memory or otherwise deal with the mists. But something important to remember about the mists is that it is the dreaming itself kind of protecting changelings. And that's a big old thing to deal with. I don't think a single mage pushing back with their mind magic, unless they are a true master of the sphere, is going to have much luck manipulating it on their own. That's my that's my personal take on the sort of cosmology. But. Yeah, my, my personal take was a lot more... I mean, mind one being too useful is a whole other question for mage, but my sort of take was you could use it to sort of affect your effective banality rating on the mists is sort of where I would go with that. But, that that makes more sense. Yeah. I think that yeah. would like not a full, not like, Oh, you get one success. You have a full shield, but like, well, you're normally banality eight and you got five successes. So now you have still memory gaps from effectively banality three, but you have temporarily made yourself more willing to accept the weird and fantastic. Therefore you remember more of this stuff. Yes. Yeah. I could, I could get behind that. For me, whenever I look at the mists, like to me, it is either sufficiently potent on its own that it can hide something from all of humanity, or it is kind of a relative of some herb being. And to me, the key in mage is I think the mist should be implacable. There should be no way to permanently abide it. The cost to fend it off should always be rising. So the first week you need two successes. The second week you need four successes. The third week you need six successes, or you need to start seeding sanity and you start accumulating quiet, which is kind of like the mage version of bedlam to do a weird way of doing it. And it should affect everything. Like I would imagine that there are technocratic groups that are monitoring things coming out of the Maya or the dreaming or something like that because they have identified it. And it's something weird, but the problem is you can only work in that division for six weeks out of your entire career and your notes will slowly change over time. So it is this constant uphill race against yeah. the train. You've got like something that looks like a radiation badge. Yeah. It's like you're, yeah. Cause like, like that's one thing I was thinking with the technocracy in general with banality, you could have a low banality technocrat in theory, but with the way the technocracy is set up, either in Guide to the Technocracy or in Technocracy Reloaded, there's going to have serious problems being accepted by the technocracy just by looking at the personality of what a low banality person is, right? Like, they're they're not filling out the paperwork, for one thing. Like, they're, you know, they're not... <laughs> well, and, and to me, it kind of brings up the question fundamentally of what banality is. To me, in Mage, by changing the world, you are temporarily increasing your banality to 15 or something mm-hmm. to literally will this thing uh, into existence that didn't but, exist before. But, but what is it that artists do? Like, truly creative artists change the world. Um, I mean, that's a trivial notion. That's like saying a truly creative meteorite yeah. changes the world. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't even have to be artists in Changeling either. You can be, you can muse all sorts of people right who are considered dreamers Mm -hmm. and ultimately what they come down to is very passionate eccentric people who care about what it is their doesn't have to be art but their passion as opposed to caring about practical concerns or what's expected of them that's how i see low banality 
I, I guess in that way, I would also consider mages to be very high banality because everything they are literally fighting a war for reality. There is nothing yeah. more practical than that. They are yeah. fighting for the existence of humanity and the beliefs of their culture. So it quickly becomes a definitional thing, and I totally get that. But yeah. I, I just like notionally, it also gets in the way of that super friends problem where you're yeah. like, oh man, this guy is open to reality. Maybe too open to reality. <laughs> but, but I think I think I think any man any mage that fits under the definition of a mad scientist or a like the concept of mad scientist or mad wizard or not in the they're literally crazy, but they're like they've sort of gone off. They're not doing this for practical reasons as much. I think that's when you start to get into lower banality too. It also goes back to that issue of the communal versus the individual in the sense that mages want their version of reality to be the correct one for everybody yeah in in theory or most mages whereas changelings when they're inspiring artists to to put change into the world or whatever they're not saying the artist has to change the world the artist just has to create something and that's sufficient to create the mm -hmm. contact with the dreaming yeah, I, I think it's also reasonable to say anytime a mage does a vulgar effect, they are so thoroughly setting the local warp and weft of reality that that's a banality trigger. Like they themselves may not be high banality, but for that moment to force that fireball into existence or to forcefully manifest that angel or to rip a hole in space, everything else has to get out of the way. And if that includes your precious uh, fey notion of self or your tide of the dreaming or whatever the dink it is, so yeah. be it. I think that's something I'd also be fine with. Yeah, it also gets trouble because, I mean, changelings do that to each other all the time, too. Uh, well, the question is, what are they doing? Yeah. Mage very much comes from the angle of you are manipulating manipulating the raw bits of reality. I don't know if changeling says that. So it, it's one of those things where, yes, it looks the same, but the way they're doing it may be wildly different. Again, just food for thought. In a sense, I would say, if, if I can boil it down into a trite soundbite, if a mage is using forces three prime two, the mage is wholeheartedly saying, I believe in fireballs. If a changeling uses pyretics three, they're getting everyone else around them to accept the existence of fireballs. And that's the distinction. Hmm. I think that's neat. The idea that one is one is forcing their will. The other one is just kind of creating a hole for it to fill. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing is, it's not even getting everyone around them. It's getting the place to accept it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if the people don't accept it, that's what the mists are for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good thing we have those mists. I mean, they're a pain sometimes, yeah. but, you know. Unless you don't, unless you have that flaw where you, they don't work for you, but that's yeah. another story. Which to me brings back a, a theme I guess I forgot to mention. To me, everything in Changeling seems temporary. We are but fleeting and we can create joy, but that is enough. Where Mage is kind of technically pushing for a permanent end game. And whenever I have Changelings in the rare case where they do, Everything is like after a dream. It is like a, a cookie dissolving on your tongue. Um, it is wonderful and great, but we don't get to take it with us. And that is that is changeling to me. Well, they also yeah. reincarnate, which helps. Yeah. Yes. They have the they have that bonus. <laughs> you also get into Seely versus Unseely, which is presented mm -hmm. as Seely being the ant and the Unseely is the grasshopper in the mm -hmm. parable a lot of the time too. But which means that all the Unseely should be dead during winter and the Seely should be fine. So Bring on winter. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, there's a thing to get two games have in common. Uh, we can definitely come up with examples that go against whatever themes we say are part of the yeah. game. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's the whole world of darkness. Yes. So I think so, Terry, is there any other things besides me? I mean, mage, the podcast will have links to it. All that. Uh, the discord's amazing. All, uh, all those. The podcast is amazing. But besides mage, the podcast, is there anything else you wanted to, 
shout out or highlight that you've been working on or? Uh, sure. In addition to that, I do Pain in the Dice, which is a little podcast that is just a collection of random topics. And part of that is my project RPGnomics, where I talk about the economics of the RPG industry. So if you're a professional in that space or have a particularly interesting angle, by all means, reach out to me, Terry at PainTheDice.com. But otherwise, yes, uh, Mage the Podcast is the big thing. I, I've published a number of things on the Storyteller Vault. I am always looking for feedback and interest for those and those are kind of my big things. If you happen to be a property casualty actuary in the United States, I'm the head of the reinsurance working group for the casualty actuary society. And I look forward to working for you Lone other reinsurance actuary who happens to be interested in the world of darkness. Yeah. Um, so and- everyone just had to roll glamor. I think there to yeah. like difficulty eight or gain a point. Of- you you <laughs> may be the, the rara avis in the sense of the actuary who's interested in changeling to some extent. Uh, the the constant error people in the arts and sciences make is the sciences frequently fail to appreciate the raw amount of time and effort that goes into the arts and the arts often fail to appreciate the type and degree of creativity required mm-hmm. to make sense of the sciences yeah. so I and actually we do we do have at yeah. least i can think of several ways several cathane you could make or thaline that would work in your area. So it's not, that was a bit of a joke. There, Fair, but, but the arts still throw better parties. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, the, the, the sciences ones tend to be better funded and are much more reliably scheduled. So, you know, it, it was my computer uh, in university. It was our computer science faculty frosh week thing where that got us banned from a bar when we were out drinking, but that's another And thereby hangs the tale. Yes. Where else, where can people find you online, Terry? At Terry Robinson on Twitter is really the only other place where I would point people at Pain in the Dice if you're curious about that program. At ExaltCast, if you're interested in the 35-episode series I did just trying to figure out how the game Exalted worked. And at TriatCon, which is a convention that Chaz Kellner and Josh Heath and I ran last year that we regularly forget that we did. We <laughs> we did we had 600 gaming hours. And uh, we frequently are like, oh yeah, we did a we did a con, and we may try and do that again at some point. Well, having missed it last year, despite hearing repeated mentions of it on the Discord and elsewhere, I'm looking forward to seeing that happen again, personally. And we look forward to having you, Pook. Huzzah! All right, I suppose with that we will do our outro. So this has been Changeling the podcast. Thank you again to Terry for joining us. Gladly. Yes, thank you very much. I've been your host, Puka, and I've been your host, Josh. You can find us on changelingthepodcast.com. We have a Facebook page, uh, Changeling the Podcast. We have a Discord, which you can find on our website. We are working on the Patreon, and hopefully we'll have it out by the time you hear this, but we don't have the details quite yet for that. You can also find us on Twitter at changelingcast. And until next time, steer clear of technocrats. They tend to be bad news, and they just, uh, yeah. We now have an active Patreon with members who we can thank at the end of each episode. Hooray! So this week, we'd like to give a special thanks to Sandshaker and, I hope I pronounced this correctly, Seija, our first two subscribers. You can also subscribe by going to patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast. Here come the outtakes. I thought I heard. I thought I heard Josh about to. No, oh, Josh, I, are you? I okay. didn't think I made. I didn't think I audibly did anything. I was thinking of saying something. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Your telepathy was just so loud. <laughs> okay. <laughs>